0: Very good morning to you all, and it is a joy once again to be with you in the context of the hearing and the reading, the receiving of God's holy, inspired, and fruitful word. I'd ask us this morning uh, to turn in uh, our Bibles or to glance at the uh, bulletin for our text, which is in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6. The reading is from verses, uh, from verse 9 to verse 12. Uh, In fact, we will focus our attention only on one verse, although we want to hear a few more around it. Uh, But we will attend especially this morning to Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10. But we will read from verse 9 uh, to verse 12. And as we do, friends, let us remember Uh, These are not merely the words of any man. These are the words of the living God. Let us hear him. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work Amen. Let's pray. O gracious and faithful God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom comes every good thing, who has in kindness and mercy and in wisdom not only given us your holy word, but has given us this word on this day for each one of us that we each might hear in this word what we need for life and for godliness and that by way of this particular word the glory, the wonder and the beauty, the loveliness and the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ might become that much more visible to us and precious to us that in him we might by the spirit he gives offer our amen in faith in word and in life to the word and work of the father and we ask that this very thing might be accomplished among us whom you have kindly and wisely gathered today and we ask this in Jesus name amen The justice of God. Is that good news? That God is infinitely, perfectly, and yes, we must say, piercingly just in all that he is and all that he does. So that whatever God does, however little we may understand it, and certainly however little we may agree with it, is perfectly, is exhaustively, and is unfailingly just. Now putting it that way may make us pause over whether in fact this is good news after all. Every little descriptor in that affirmation not only reminds us of how immensely other God is in comparison with us, but also how we are not just like that. We aren't just like that, infinitely, perfectly, relentlessly, unfailingly just. And for that reason, among others, we are, I would suggest, probably used to thinking of God and justice along only certain biblical lines. Especially those lines which have to do with the good news of the gospel... That God, in his justice, saves sinners. And that he does this not by forgetting his justice, by acting in terms of it, by giving his very self, by giving us in the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, who is righteous where we are not. Who is obedience where we have not been and whose very blood washes away all of our sins, so that God is, in the language of the Apostle Paul, both just and the justifier of the sinner. And aren't we glad that is part of the good news of the gospel? Especially the more honest we are with ourselves, and how greatly we need that good word. And of course, even as we benefit from that good word of the gospel, which we capture under the language, biblical language of the doctrine of justification by faith alone, because it is based upon the righteousness and sacrifice of Jesus Christ alone. Don't we also appreciate that other, probably more familiar place in God's word, where we are reminded of God's justice? 1 John Chapter 1, verse 9, that even when believers who belong to God in Christ, who see Christ alone as their righteousness, even when they continue to sin, if they confess those sins, we learn in 1 John 1, 9, God is just and faithful to forgive us our sins. The justice of God, we are perhaps used to thinking of in terms of the good news of our justification. And the the justice of God, we might also be somewhat familiar with in terms of our readiness to be forgiven of our sins as continuing sinners in terms of 1 John. But I wonder if we are as familiar with this biblical way of speaking of God's justice. Listen again to the words of verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. It may just have been my own pastoral experience and unlike every other pastor's experience, but I'm not, I'm not sure that's likely the case. But, but I, can, I can tell you it is extraordinarily common for sacrificial, industrious, persevering, faithful Christians to think of God's delight in their service as something that is almost reluctant. Uh, It is so, our works, even our best works as we know from our reformed Confessions. Even our very best works are polluted by sin and imperfection. They certainly cannot stand uh, before God as a reason and a, and a ground and a foundation for our acceptance before him in terms of our need for forgiveness of sins. And, and that is so thoroughly the case that I wonder if we sometimes conclude wrongly that therefore when God looks upon the service of his people, he sees an absolute mess. And decides, well, he's trying. And and puts our, our service to him on the divine refrigerator like a parent does with their toddler's schoolwork. And delights in it only because the child is his. But not because there's actually anything on that paper of crayon and marker scribbles. That is, in fact, worthy of his delight. In other words, we might not be inclined to use the language Scripture uses here. That when our Heavenly Father looks upon the generous, sacrificial, largely anonymous, even mundane service of his people toward his people... And when he looks upon those acts of service with favor, and then when he rewards those acts of service, he does so, friends, let's not miss this, as an act of divine justice. Because he is, our writer says, not unjust as to overlook what his people do for each other. And it would, therefore, be an act of injustice for God to do so. Well, when we take these few words apart this morning, what we will find, I think, is that the more we reflect on what's going on here, the more we'll understand not only how that is an act of justice and why this is good news for serving saints... In other words, we will not only hear much of the sweetness uh, and, and the pleasantness of the life we actually have with one another before the Lord in Jesus Christ, but like the book of Hebrews as a whole, we will, I have to admit, also perhaps discover some places where that very same message has a few hard edges for us as well. Some hard edges with a beautifully sweet core, much like the book of Hebrews as a whole. It might in fact be good for us to remember where in Hebrews we are when we read this lovely line of chapter six and verse 10. Uh, this is in a portion of Hebrews which reaches back into chapter five. Uh, And presses on for a little while yet, which is among the most sobering words in the New Testament of warning. Warnings that that have the highest stakes in view. Warnings against apostasy. Warnings, in fact, that, that bring into view the urgency of moving from immaturity to maturity. Uh, the writer is warning these saints, and we'll say something more about them in a moment. He's warning these saints to not content themselves with having learned the basics of the Christian faith. Not content themselves with the elementary things in such a way that has made them vulnerable to error thinking that uh, they are now uh, at a position, at a place where they don't need to continue growing. They can rest upon what they have received in their elementary things, uh, and they can simply be busy in serving one another. And, and because they have the basics in place, a lot of those apparently peripheral questions for them, uh, whether we need to continue observing the Jewish law, whether really our righteousness before God and the forms of service that are pleasing to him, Involve something that might compromise the uniqueness of Jesus as our only great High Priest. Uh, the many things that are tempting these these saints, the congregation to whom the writer is writing, that are tempting them to wobble and possibly fall off, as it were, from the faith that they learned at the level of the basics, is a faith they need to be persevering in. They need to be adding to. They need to be growing in. And this passage as a whole is suffused with some of the darkest, soberest warnings along those lines. The writer is concerned that his hearers, chapter 5, verse 11, have become dull of hearing. Dull of hearing. What at first they 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 devoured, they have become used to hearing. And they've become numb in the process. Uh, They have not, in fact, pressed onward and deeper. Instead, they've become dull in hearing so that when they should have been teachers, when they should have been uh, uh, at a position of spiritual maturity to be resources for others in their formation, in their growth in Christ. Instead, they need someone to get back among them, teach them all over again. Verse verse. 12 of chapter 5, the basic principles of the oracles of God. They need milk. They should be moving on to solid food. They are unskilled in the word of righteousness. They are like children. And they need the solid food fitting for maturity. Because when they grow into that maturity, it will make them stronger to deal with with the fires of difficulty when they come. Now, having said a lot already, let's take a step back to think about what our writer is in fact referring to. Without going into detail, that would be another context, it seems likely, I would suggest very likely, that the recipients of this letter Are in Rome, and that they are also well aware of the great challenges to the churches in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is is very poor. Paul, you remember, worked hard to take up a collection from wealthier, better resourced believers elsewhere in the Roman Empire to help the churches in Jerusalem. The church in Rome, to whom this letter I suggest with others is written, the church in Rome is among the relatively wealthier churches. They are in the uh, wealthiest, most powerful city of the empire. Uh, As churches, they are benefiting from the fact that they are in in such a context. But it's not just economic. The, The persecution, the great suffering from poverty as well as from hostility that other churches like the churches in Judea, like the churches in Jerusalem have faced, they have not yet reached these Christians in Rome. That said, uh, these Christians in Rome have been part of the picture of the help that suffering Christians need. Those that are impoverished, those that are facing hostility, those who are paying great prices for their faithfulness are being helped in their call to perseverance by Roman Christians and others who are not yet dealing with that, but in their relative wealth, relative ease, are able to resource the needs of the churches that are suffering greatly. The writer to the Hebrews tells them, You did this, that is, you helped by suffering along with those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew uh, that you had better and lasting possessions. They have begun now to feel the heat of the pressure and the persecution and the loss that other churches have faced, it has not yet reached them wholly, not yet reached them fully, but they are getting some taste of what may be coming. And so the writer says elsewhere, in your struggle against sin, not just personally, but as a body, the forces and powers of sin, you Hebrews have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, that is happening in places like Jerusalem, who had already seen a number of the faithful killed for their faith. But this large and and strong Jewish community of the church in Rome, which Hebrews appears to be reflecting, they, they have sacrificed, they have given things up, they have lost possessions, but they've not yet resisted or struggled against these forces To the point of shedding their blood. But they know people who have. All right. So they are in a relative position of ease, not because they're without losses, but because by comparison with other brothers and sisters in Christ, they've not yet lost the way others do. And reflecting upon this recently, I was struck by the relevance. of Hebrews to our situation. Over the years, even recently, I've been in contexts where I've heard stories, had conversations uh, with brothers and sisters in Christ in other parts of the world today whose call to faithfulness is dramatically different from my own. Who wake up not knowing if that will be their last day. Uh, who are, in fact, facing the prospect, the very real possibility of resisting and struggling to the point of shedding blood, who who will already, perhaps, have lost uh, resources, family members, friends, possessions... Uh, their homes, their jobs, but are staring at the possibility of losing far more. And I I look at my situation and the kinds of questions that occupy churches in this part of the world uh, that are in their own way endeavoring to be faithful, and I'm struck by the dramatic contrast... With these brothers and sisters in Christ for whom the faith is an everyday, all the time, urgent matter of life and death devotion. And the things that would matter to people in ease, they just don't matter to those who are staring at the possibility of losing their very lives for Christ. And there's a refreshing hunger among them for the things of the Lord. There's anything but the becoming dull in hearing phenomenon. There's a readiness to lose all things for Christ's sake. There's a loose attachment to the things of this world, the the relative blessings, and they are blessings of wealth and and of health and of uh, forms of safety and security. There's a sobriety that reflects in its own way a maturity. And when the writer is writing the words we read as our focal point there in chapter 13. Uh, 6 and verse 10, he's writing to a church he wants to, on the one hand, encourage deeply and call things what they are. A matter of justice to God sees what you're doing. And point them to the importance of engaging the process of sanctification of growth in grace and in Christ, with a view to a time possibly coming when they will need that maturity in order to prove to be a hardy people. Now, why is it that the writer says this is a matter of divine justice, that God would would not overlook the work and love that his saints show for his name in serving one another. The meaning is that God is righteous and therefore he will not forget. We can think of our word in our translation overlook as at least very similar to what the Old Testament is regularly interested in. And that is that God is a God who remembers rather than forgets. By remembering, we're not talking about a God who brings something back in his mind that was somewhere in the back. Um, We're talking about something God does. When the psalmist asks God to remember him, he's not saying, in your divine easy chair, remember who I am. He's asking God to do something. When God remembers, he is acting in a particular way. Well, what way? He is acting in keeping with his character and his promises. When the psalmist says, remember me, he's saying, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, given who you have said you are and given what you have said you will do, act on these things, act on these things with a view to my need. And sometimes calling on God to remember rather than forget, calling upon him to take note of, to regard, has both the positive and negative dimensions to it. In Psalm 9 verse 12, we have both sides of it. He who avenges blood is mindful of his people. He also does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Both the cry of the afflicted and those who need to be avenged uh, and blood needs to be spilt in service of their vengeance, both are aspects of God who is acting upon what he sees, what he knows he is remembering his promises, he is remembering his character. And God in the Old Testament is often called upon not to forget the one who is crying out to him. And the one who cries out is encouraged whether he is poor or whether it's Zion as a whole who needs to be delivered or whether it is someone who is suffering or someone who is uh, caught up in dark and deep questions. These Suppliants, these supplicants are reminded God does remember. He invites the call, but He answers it. He invites the summons to remember His covenant because it will help us see Him as a God who keeps word. But that's just it He does keep His word, He does keep His covenant promises. He remembers us, he remembers his promises, and he acts upon them. So what's in view here is the writer is assuming as a backstory to his word of encouragement that God has promised to bless those who are blessings for his people. That's the very simple backdrop to what our writer is assuming. This is why it's a matter of justice. God has in fact said he will do this. So, God is not unjust to forget what you are doing. Now, remember what these people are doing. What these people are doing, we learn elsewhere in Hebrews, is they are caring for their brothers and sisters in Christ from other regions who make their way to Rome, or by way of their sacrificial giving to these other churches, especially in Jerusalem. They are caring for... Those who are losing everything for Christ's sake. These brothers and sisters in Christ who are paying the highest prices in the first century for faithfulness to Christ, note this, they are finding among these Roman Christians relief. They're finding among these brothers and sisters in Christ help, comfort, support. In other words, the members of Christ's body in one place are finding among the members of Christ's body in another place what the body as a whole needs and what the body as a whole can only give. Where the strength of one compensates for the weakness of another. And these needy Christians are not being left to themselves. They are finding among the Roman Christians a zeal for service That the Lord looks on with favor. And these forms of service are good deeds on behalf of God Himself. They serve the saints in ways perhaps dramatic, but also likely mundane. Our sometimes complicated relationship to this whole question of good works of service and how God is related to them among his saints, how service and obedience are to be understood by Christians in terms of our Christian faith and our Reformed faith in particularly, our sometimes complicated relationship to good works and service, I think is, is, is often driven by concerns that we must not obscure what we said earlier about justification by faith alone. And also perhaps a kind of, of general but very common mistaken understanding of what legalism is as though legalism is any time you talk about works and service and obedience where you are suggesting or outright saying things the Bible says about how they are important, in fact, how they are ordinarily necessary and required, that the absence of them is a cause for concern, uh, that they are ways in which we are advanced in the cause of our salvation and of our growth in Christ and the good of the church as a whole. We have some discomfort with that biblical language, sometimes because we misunderstand what legalism is, as though it's saying obedience is important and necessary, which is not what legalism is. In other words, we are, we are sometimes in this context, in the sad situation of, some who, of someone who for a long time abused alcohol and became as a result an alcoholic, And we are now averse to the very presence or prospect of alcohol. So much so that we start to think the problem might be alcohol. But the Bible does not share that anxiety. Nor does the Bible support it. The problem with legalism is not good works. And the problem with a bad doctrine of salvation and justification is not the reality of service and obedience. But of our relationship to it. And in Hebrews 6, we will miss the encouragement that is here for us in its fullness. If when we hear this writer say it's a matter of divine justice that God not ignore your service, if we blunt that in some way, if we domesticate it in some way. Now, how then are we well well related to it? How is this, in fact, a word of encouragement to us, as, uh, as well as a word with potentially hard edges? Well, I think it's very much along these, these lines. Do you remember what we've learned? The good works of service are that this church is rendering to those in terrible circumstances whose faith is being tried in the most severe way. It is a form of service that puts themselves at great risk as well. We already hear from this writer that his, his audience, the congregation he is writing to, they have themselves already lost things. They have lost, some, some of them have lost their possessions. Some of them have lost their status in society and culture. Some of them have lost already a great deal. But they are serving those who've lost far more. And they are rendering valuable, effective, useful service to them. But their service, we also understand, is not exactly the service of those whom they are serving. They have not yet struggled to the point of shedding blood. So their service is something short of the service others render. And that service others render, which may mean losing their lives for Christ's sake, is something these Christians, at least in Hebrews, are not staring at immediately as a possibility they're losing things they're sacrificing but there's a difference between their service and the ones they are serving and what they have paid for christ now why does that matter for our passage all right so we're not looking at losing our lives today for christ's sake for you if any of us in the room today are really wrestling with that this morning Few, if any of us in the room today, are thinking as we sit here that it's highly likely or very probable that someone's going to come in this room and execute us for Christ's sake. Is it possible? Yes. Is it what's on our radar as we come in every week and as we carry out our service every day to one another? Not likely. Does that therefore mean your service doesn't matter? Is it only valuable to the Lord when it's a matter of losing everything? Or is what this writer is saying true? That even among those who have not yet struggled to the point of shedding blood, their service remains even now in this mode, something God is not unjust, ...so as to overlook? No. He says, in fact, this is the case. All right, what else then? Well, what is our writer's concern... ...in this section of Hebrews? His concern is that even these... ...serving Christians... ...whom the Lord delights in... ...and whom the Lord as a matter of justice will bless... ...for their service, with a view to their service... ...these same people are vulnerable to falling off the ship which is the church as it were because they will they have not yet moved beyond the elementary things they need to grow and grow now in Jesus Christ and they need to grow so that they will be less vulnerable to those temptations they need to grow catch this, so that they will find themselves at a place of spiritual maturity where they are able to lose what the Jerusalem Jerusalem churches have been able to lose and remain faithful. They need to be matured so that if the Lord should call them to lose even more than they have, they will not be crushed in that. That's spiritual maturity. But it begins with where the Hebrews are. And where they are is already, already pleasing in their father's sight. But at the same time, it is a summons to pressing on. To pressing forward. Now why why might this matter to us? Because even though we are not all sitting here wondering if we're going to be executed for the faith today, though the Lord in his sovereign wisdom may call one of us or more to do so, it may put into a certain perspective and a certain context the forms of quiet, largely anonymous service to one another, which must come under the umbrella of what God is not so unjust As to ignore. And which you, as you sit here, are carrying out. And which you today need to understand, need to know. Your Heavenly Father loves. Regards. Remembers. And is not so unjust as to neglect to bless. It may not be. What your brother or sister in Christ is called to today, in some other context, in some other place in the world perhaps, that does not mean that what the Lord has called you to, and which you embrace as a matter of faith and love and hope in the form in which God has given it to you, that does not mean that that is worthless. It does not mean that that is meaningless think of the sadly small percentage of most congregations that actually do most of the work that make the church go. Your service is of such a character, and it's largely anonymous, perhaps in your experience mundane forms, that God is not so unjust as to overlook Though everyone around you does. The dad who works hard all day long and who sacrifices things he would enjoy or love to acquire or delight in spending his time doing and it returns to his home to his wife and to his family to serve still more who is often misunderstood who is often overlooked, his service is not meaningless before the God who is not so unjust as to overlook that critically important service to saints to which the Lord has called him. The mother, who works hard from morning to night as well to build her home, to care for, nurture, and support and guide her little ones from the days of diapers to student dances and beyond. Whose service, whose actual service, may among the people we experience in ordinary life be by far, perhaps, the most largely anonymous and invisible when compared to reality. May walk in the Christian confidence... That there isn't a moment of that service. There is not a movement of her heart toward her family and toward others that is not known to her God, that is not delighted in by her God, and that God is not so unjust as to overlook, even if her husband does. And even if her children do. Parents who for many, many years serve and pray for their children... Have their hearts broken by their children's sin? Agonizingly pray when the children are grown up about the direction of their lives and what it will look like Pray for their future spouses. Pray for their future children and their own future grandchildren. Pray with a view to new and strange temptations facing young men and women of their age. Parents whose hearts are broken, whose hearts are full of questions, who are concerned for their children in that service can know for certain. God is not so unjust as to overlook the investment that has been paid out over so many years in ways almost entirely invisible to the children themselves. We could go on. Pastors who pay often very, very high personal and ministerial costs for serving the people of God according to truth when that truth is hard or when it costs not merely friendships and relationships, but the very prospect of ongoing service to saints whom the pastor loves, Christians who give of the resources generously and sacrificially in labor, in service, in money, in prayer, sometimes over many years, just to see the church strengthened and supported in You, all of you, whatever, however mundane, however however apparently insignificant your acts of service toward the saints are today, as a little one bounces on your knee or is by your side, as your mind now runs to the children no longer at home or the friends you are concerned about, as you think about the service you are going to be rendering to this very congregation in the days to come this very week, whatever its form, friends, be encouraged and be sure that when God does not forget what you do but blesses it, it's not because he's reluctantly agreeable, but it's a matter of divine justice. He is not such a God. As to call you to give your lives in service to his body. When he does not do it himself first. And when he does not bless you for the very grace he gives you to do so. Because of course, what our Lord taught is true. Inasmuch as you did this or that, to the very least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. And I know that's why you did it. That's where your heart really is. Not that you don't love your child, your spouse, and your fellow church member, but you love them from a heart devoted utterly to me. And therefore, you give without fear. And you lose without fear. Regret. In fact, you would die for my name's sake. And what you do along the way toward that possible death, the little things you do for the least of these, my brethren, I want you to know I know this is done in fact for me, to me. After all, the church is his very body. And our union with him is so real, so thick, so dense, so palpable, so powerful, that as he is the one who cleanses, adorns, protects, and glorifies his body, he does so, we learn from his word, through his word, through his sacraments, but also through prayer, through servants he appoints and ordains to their office, but also through you who see in one another Opportunities for serving Christ, which is why you're so good at easily getting over the personality quirks and quiddities of your brothers and sisters in Christ. You don't love them because in every single respect you like them. You love them because they with you belong to Christ. And that is more than enough. And those who are his hands and feet in serving his body, the writer in Hebrews wants us to know, can be certain, can be certain that while these works will never. But never were designed to stand the scrutiny of God's holiness with respect to your justification. That is not the whole picture of your salvation. And he is not so unjust as to look reluctantly upon the very thing he, by his spirit, has worked in your heart in the first place. He delights in his own gifts. And your service to one another is exactly that. But then here's where that hard edge Comes in. By persevering in mutual service in this way, we are being strengthened. Mundane service by mundane service. We are being strengthened for a time that may not be that far off when we will need to have a kind of gravitas and maturity about the things that in fact belong to the Christian faith and the church's life, so that when the question is live a little longer or die for the sake of Christ, when you must, we will be ready for that sacrifice. But friends, that kind of spiritual hardiness does not happen right away. It doesn't happen overnight. There's no flipping of the switch that somehow magically makes you ready to die for Christ. Instead, the Lord cultivates his garden in such a way that by way of your small victories, by way of your small, relentlessly faithful acts of truly sacrificial service, your little ways of prioritizing the things of the Lord's day and the things of the Lord's people over everything else, that steady, step-by-step growth in faithfulness will like muscles of the human body by way of their exercise make the body stronger and friends we need that strength we don't know where things are going we should not presume that the days of dying for christ are long behind us or will always be in other lands Every month, it seems, we are presented with a new form of the question. Exactly what does your devotion to Christ look like and how much will it take for you to wobble in it? And through the little forms of faithfulness, which we're being encouraged the Lord sees and blesses when no one else does, you, friend, are being strengthened for a time in your future or in your children's future, Or in your children's children's future when what has been worked out over time by God's organic grace will prove in that time to be sufficient for the day of trouble. So friends, are we today ready for the day of trouble? I pray so. But can we not also now look them, reflect them upon the relatively little things of Christian faith and life, of church faith and life, to which the Lord calls us and see them in perspective now as opportunities in the Lord's kind providence to be hardened, to be grow, growing, to be strengthened a little wee bit more on our way to whatever it is the Lord may call us to in the future. Why is this writer so concerned for this congregation? Well, because he knows what's happening over here, and he knows that this congregation has been spinning its circles. It's been... It's been chasing its tail at the level of the elementary things. And it's as though they've needed to be persuaded there's more to the Christian life than your get-out-of-hell-free card. That there's more to it. That they need to be persuaded that the every opportunity to honor the Lord and worship Him on His day is to be embraced, to be uh, craved for, to be seized upon. That uh, what other Christians in other places don't need a second thought for. We need to allow into our world of possibilities our friends who are up at 5.30 every morning to pray together because they know this is the stuff of life and death together. Uh, They do things like that which in our context we we might need to climb an insurmountable mountain of persuading people this is at least possible. But in our context there may be little things which today can become the next thing in my service to these saints, that strengthens me in the Lord. And as I do that, I do that not to build my own righteousness before God, but because in every engagement of love toward the Lord's people, whatever it costs me, whatever sacrifices are involved, summons me further down the path of a hardiness, which in those sometimes painful, sacrificial forms of service, I can be certain The Lord knows. The Lord knows and the Lord loves. In fact, he loves as a matter of divine justice. As we were saying last time we were together, so we want today to remember as we depart from this passage in Hebrews, the gospel has not made you The objects of God's eternal love. The object, the the gospel comes from your being the object of God's eternal love. It is because God loved the world that he gave his son. And when he delights over your praise and delights over your service and tells you it is a matter of divine justice that he bless you as you bless others, do not try to have a better theology than he does. Rest in the arms of your truly, sincerely, loving, heavenly father and then work at it and love each other and serve each other even when it hurts because of the grace he is faithful to give. Let us pray. Ever blessed and faithful God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, what a a joy it is to hear in your word that though we sometimes struggle against the forms of service you have called us to now. We may be certain, as we are faithful with respect to them, that our efforts in the grace you give, that our service rendered in Christ's name, is something that you remember with your blessing something that you remember in your faithfulness and that what you have called us to, you provide for and that in these ways you are blessed to strengthen and provide for your church as a whole. Thank you for in this way dignifying our humblest endeavors for Christ. Forgive us of the many sins and imperfections at work even in our best forms of service and encourage us in the urgency of our growth in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, not only for our good and not only for the good of those you have joined to us in life and worship, but also for the advance of the glory of our God, which we seek in Jesus' name. Amen.